Hello everyone, welcome to the first session of The Street Theologian and this being the introductory session, we'd be talking about theology, which is the topic of all of these podcasts and we hope that this first session sets the base for all of the other podcasts that you'd be listening to. So what is theology and why are we, why are we talking about it? Why do we have a podcast about it? Theology comes from the Greek words theos and logos, which mean God and reason, or God and study. And the word theology, in a literal sense, is the study of God. And nowadays, when you say that you study theology, or if someone calls himself a theologian, maybe in most societies, um, this can sound weird. It can sound a bit archaic. Like, uh, what can you, what can you earn from studying theology? can't be rich doing that, right? Why is it even important? But if you think about it, the question of God is probably one of the most important existential questions that man would ever confront in his life. Even in fields like philosophy, no serious philosopher um, would ignore the question of God. At some point in your study, you'd have to confront this question. And I remember in one of the works of Joseph Ratzinger, talking about culture, talking about the faith, he talks about how religion, if we think about it, is at the core of every culture. Because re- religion sets the hierarchy of values in any culture, in any society. We think about culture, talking about the sum total of values and traditions and a community. And religion sort of organizes the hierarchy of these values, tells you what's important and what's not, and how to look at the world and how not to look at it. And in this sense, it's very important to to study religion in, if only in order to understand modern culture, religion or the absence of religion. When you talk about theology within the context of the Christian tradition, well, more specifically within the context of the Catholic tradition, there are two main pillars which serve as the source of theological reflection, and these are sacred scripture and tradition. And why? Well, because theology is basically the study of God, but what we know about God, um, we know mostly because of what God has revealed to us. Later on, we'd be talking about Revelation, which should be another podcast session. But what we know about God, um, we know because he revealed it to us. Of course, human reason can deduce certain aspects of God, like uh, God has to be infinite. God has to be the cause of all the other causes. Um, the first mover who moved the dice, which caused all of the other movements in the universe. There has to be a being who um, serves as the first cause, as the first mover. But beyond this, when we talk about the inner life of God, when we talk about God's ways, God's mode of being, most of what we know about Him comes from what He Himself has revealed to us. And what He has revealed to us, we know mostly from sacred scripture, from the Word of God um, put into writing by certain biblical, well, by certain authors whom God uses instruments in order to put his words, put his, his um, identity or his revelation of himself into writing. And aside from what's written, there are also certain truths of faith of what Christ has revealed to us that have been passed on throughout the entire history, history of um, Christianity. And so in most theological reflections, 
a real starting point would be to look at what has been said in sacred scripture and what we know because of tradition. And I guess this is one thing that sort of differentiates theological study from the other sciences or from other fields of study. In the study of theology, there's a real awareness that you're studying something that you've received. And this is reflected, for instance, in St. Anselm's um, description of what theology is. For St. Anselm, he describes the theological method as fides querens intellectum, which is Latin for faith-seeking understanding. That the method of theological reflection uses as, as a starting point the faith. The faith meaning what, um, what you've received from God. And in this sense, intellectual humility is a very important attribute of theological reflection. There has to be some acceptance that you're not studying something that man has invented. You're not studying something that you created, or well, to put it in a in a better way, um, that you're not imposing your own mind into the matter that you're studying, but rather your mind is receiving what is outside himself, what is greater than himself, and, and God is so much greater than. Than anything else in the universe. Um, the mind is receiving something that's greater than himself. And so there's this sense of openness towards, towards what is revealed. Faith is the starting point through which we can go deeper into the meaning of revelation. It's only by accepting what has been revealed to us by God through his word in sacred scripture and through the truths of faith that have been passed on to us. It's only by accepting these as starting points can we go deeper into theological reflection. Otherwise, we'd always be stuck into this um, an abyss of proof-seeking or evidence-seeking. And perhaps this could raise a question that then maybe theology is not a real science. It's not a scientific study of, of a certain topic since it takes off from what has been given to you. It takes off from what is given, from what has been received. However, I'd say that theology is a science still because like any science, it's a systematic approach towards an object of study based on fundamental principles. And these fundamental principles, what has been received, revelation, these serve as part of the process towards a logical process of deduction. But uh, yeah, perhaps what distinguishes theology is that its point of departure are the revealed truths of faith. But even in this matter, theology isn't all that different if you consider the fact that in other scientific disciplines like math or physics, the starting point for the theological process of reasoning are things that you receive outside of yourself. Um, and even in these disciplines, you have theorems that are accepted by scholars as true. You can think, for instance, of the theory of gravity or the theorem of Pythagoras in math. And they serve as starting points for further theological, further rather logical deduction. And, and the fact that the scientific process of reason derives from these ideas does not make a, calcula a calculation less scientific. And we can say the same thing in theology, the fact that you begin with something that you received doesn't make the process of reflection 
um, any less intellectual or any less scientific than in any other fields of study. And this method of systematic reflection is something that we see throughout the entire history of theology. For instance, if you look at uh, what we call the fathers of the church, um, the fathers of the church are basically theologians who've lived in the early centuries of Christianity during the time of antiquity, who have battled against heresies against the faith, who battled, who attempted to defend the faith um, against those who were trying to persecute the Christians. And most of these fathers actually used philosophy, used systematic argumentation in order to explain theological truths. For instance, in the 4th century, the Cappadocian fathers, these are, well, three theologians, and they're called St. Gregory of Nasiansus, St. Gregory of Nice, and St. Basil the Great. Um, in arguing for the divinity of Christ, they used a philosophical concept, um, the notion of substance, or usius in Greek, described the unity of substance between the first and second persons of the Blessed Trinity. And in, even if you look at another father, St. Augustine, we have another podcast about him, he used the language of Platonic philosophy in order to do theology. And I guess among the theologians throughout the history of Christianity, one of the more interesting ones and the more one of the more important ones is St. Thomas Aquinas. And he's not the father of the church because he didn't live during antiquity. Rather, he lived during the medieval ages in um, what century was he? 13th century. And he basically used philosophical arguments in order to talk about the dogma, talk about certain truths of faith. In fact, from St. Thomas, we have the famous five ways in order to prove the existence of God. Um, And because of this, in 1897, one of the popes of the church, Pope Leo XIII, wrote an encyclical called Eterni Patris. Um, Well, this is just a side note, but encyclicals are basically named after the first two words of the entire document. It's like an like when you save a document in Microsoft Word without putting any title, by default, it um, uses the first two or three words that that um, come up in the document when you start reading the document. In any case, in an encyclical called Eterni Patris, Pope Leo XIII encouraged the study of St. Thomas in theology, primarily because of the scholastic approach. Scholasticism is a method that was developed in the medieval period in which um, scholars um, went through a rigorous logical analysis of concepts in order to prove certain arguments. And, and because of St. Thomas's use of the scholastic approach in theology, he was able to make theology more easily accessible to most people because he usually takes off from sensible reality in order to, to deduce their logical implications in the study of revealed truths. For instance, going back to the example of the five ways, St. Thomas begins with what's visible. For instance, let's go to one argument, the whole idea of the first mover. Um, talks about how you see movement all around you, and it says this is something evident to everyone. But that if you see movement around you, you know that a movement is caused by another movement, and which in turn is caused by another movement. If you go back to an infinite, infinite um, chain of movements causing other movements, it has to stop somewhere. And there must be a first mover who moved the first dice that caused the movement of all of 
all the other dices and if you call it dices do you, do you say it in the plural that, 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 that you have um, and this this argument shows very clearly how St. Thomas uses something that's obvious to everyone and elevates the reasonable in order to talk about a theological idea mm. and he has this great work called the Summa Theologiae which is an attempt to confront um, a comprehensive range of questions in the faith. And what's impressive about St. Thomas is that um, it's his intellectual humility. Here you have a great mind. I remember um, someone telling me that in her experience, she was having doubts of faith. Um, but after a while, reading a book on St. Thomas Aquinas, she was so impressed about how so many questions that she has asked was asked by St. Thomas Aquinas. And, and it's true. Like uh, If you think about it, Sometimes uh, certain doubts feel original. You think you're the only one who, who's doubting this um, this thing, but uh, it's impressive how someone else has thought about it before you. If not Saint Thomas Aquinas and probably Aristotle. Um, but what's, imp- what's impressive about Saint Thomas Aquinas is his humility. In fact, that, um, he had a mystical experience of an apparition of God, of Christ in front of him. And after this, he wanted to tear apart all of his works, but his secretary prevented him because he felt that all of his works fall short in describing the greatness of God. And and in that same apparition, apparently Christ asked him, Thomas, you've written a lot about me. What would you want in return? And the only thing that Thomas said was, no one but you. In the end, he wasn't doing it to be famous. He wasn't doing it to impress other people. He was doing things in order to be closer to God. For him, that was the only thing that mattered. And he's a saint because of that. He's not a saint because he wrote the Summa Theologiae, even if, of course, definitely the church values this this work. But he's not a saint because of his intellectual greatness, but because of his sanctity, because of, he lived a life that was close to God. Um, However, this doesn't mean that the Thomistic method is the only valid one. In fact, the Church has always encouraged pluralism within the um, limits of, of dogma, within the limits of what we know from what God has revealed to us. You can't contradict Revelation, but definitely in trying to understand Revelation, you can have a thousand approaches which will continue developing and changing throughout centuries as as we go deeper into these truths. And maybe one of the greatest evidence of this pluralism is Pope Benedict XVI himself, who is explicit explicit about the fact that he's not a Thomist. And in fact, he prefers St. Augustine more than St. Thomas. And St. Augustine is also a very great theologian. We have, as I said, we have another podcast about him. And to end, I'd like to talk briefly about an encyclical, which I think I mentioned in another podcast, by... John Paul II, it's called Fides et Ratio. It was written in 1998, and it's Latin for faith and reason. And here, John Paul II argues how reason and faith are not incompatible, but in fact um, are two wings which elevate man towards contemplation. They do not contradict one another, but complement one another. Philosophy and theology are interlinked in the mission towards understanding the truth. In the end, they're all after the same truth, and, and the truth is one. Mm. And that reason is not a danger to faith, nor faith is a danger to reason. On the contrary, it is intrinsic to human nature to be reasonable. 
precisely making man capable of arriving at the truth. And the ultimate truth is God himself. That's why man is naturally kapak's day, precisely because he is a reasonable being. Because he's reasonable, he's capable of God, capable of understanding God. But of course, not perfectly. And yeah, through reason, man is capable of arriving at a knowledge of the transcendent being, who's the source of all beings. But at the same time, reason is not enough because, as I said earlier, the mystery of God is not self-evident. Um, we can come to the knowledge of Him, but in order to get to know Him, um, we count on what He has revealed Himself to us, on His communication of Himself to us, which we call revelation. And, and this is way, where faith becomes very necessary. It's faith that elevates reason and enables it to go beyond the boundaries of its own limitations. So, anyway, I hope that this first podcast, this first episode sets the base for all of the other episodes that we'll be uploading in the future. So, ciao, goodbye, and see you next time.